0: The Fanboy, Episode 75. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 75th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Yes, yeah, so welcome to another stellar edition of the show. Going to be covering all kinds of interesting stuff. We're going to be talking some Star Wars, some Batflex, some Venom, some Superman, some Flash, some Aquaman, some A Star is Born, all kinds of good stuff on the way for you. But right now I want to I just kind of open things with a little bit of housekeeping. Because you guys have been just flooring me with the support. Because in these last couple of weeks, you know, I've been asking you to really kind of come through with some more reviews. You know, I was stuck at 40 reviews for several months. And I kind of made a plea, and you guys have answered, and then some. In just the last couple of weeks, I got 10 more reviews. All of them are five stars, and I'm just, you know, I just want you to know that, like, because of this... This show, this little independently run show where it's just me here in my house with a microphone and a computer just living my dream and pursuing what I love, has been in like the top five fanboy podcasts on all of Apple for quite some time. And it's because of reviews like this and because of reviews like this and where I'm at on the charts, it makes it easier and easier for me to book guests for you guys. We all win. We all win. The more you support the show, the better the show becomes. See, so it all works out. So thank you to everyone who's done this. But I got three since last week alone. Three new reviews since last week alone. So I want to read these before we get into some of today's fun. All right. So the first one came from user Connor J. Quinn. What's up, Connor? He put, uh, great podcast for passionate fans. He wrote, started listening to this podcast around January of this year, and now it's become part of drive home from work routine on Fridays. Mario is probably one of the most genuine hosts I've come across, and I love his passion for DC heroes, Superman in particular. Oh, this is going to be a good show for you, Connor, if you like my Superman stuff, because... Anyway, uh, definitely worth a listen if you're even remotely interested in pop culture and superheroes in general. Side note, Mario, I worked in the wedding industry for 10 years as both a server and an event coordinator, so I get that struggle. Oh, so yeah, you you know the struggle is real and how we kind of have to sacrifice time with our friends and our loved ones because while they're all off enjoying their weekends, that's when we're out working. So yes, the struggle is real, folks. But okay. And then the next one comes from a user named Joseph Golden. How you doing, Joseph? Joseph wrote one of the best fanboy podcasts. He wrote, this is one of the most thoughtful and passionate podcasts that I have ever listened to. Mario is always insightful when it comes to all things geek, but where he really shines is when he goes in depth on many different topics, from the state of fandom to his love of Superman. I'm seeing a recurring theme here with these reviews. Um, It is here that Mario gets very passionate and at times emotional about the things that he loves and cherishes the most. And even though at times when I don't agree with him, I can appreciate where he is coming from and open to chat uh, and, and, and to be open, sorry, to that other opinion, which is not a bad thing. Overall, if you want to hear a fanboy podcast that is filled with heart, care and passion, then this podcast is highly recommended. And to Mario, thank you so much for for starting this podcast, bringing a level of professionalism to geek news and always being positive even though it is hard to do these days. Keep up the great work on the show. Wow. Um that personal note at the end really kind of gets to me cuz it means that like the mission that I'm going for here what I'm trying to do the, the 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 energy that I put into trying to change the way things are sort of covered and handled in my little corner of the web uh, it seems to be resonating with some of you. So I, I, I'm glad that you guys like the positivity and the fact that I'm just not, you know, I'm not looking for scare tactics because as much as that would probably help my bank account, I want to just let you enjoy the things you love. You know, it's kind of what I think we're here to do. But, um, then there's also this one who I think he's kind of trolling me a little bit, but DJ Mike Aaron, uh, Well, thanks for the review anyway. DJ Mike Aaron wrote, Love this podcast. Been listening since earlier this year. Lots of good comic book scoops and discussion. Mario Francisco Sanchez is a great guy and has a lot of passion for this stuff. So uh, Mike Aaron, uh, I think you know my last name is not Sanchez. I'm not MFS. I'm MFR. But um, either way, thanks for the review. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And hey, if you're a DJ, how you doing, brother? All right, so now let's get on into the show. Actually, you know, before we can do that, actually, I should just give you one other quick reminder about October 27th because spots are filling up fast. Uh, they haven't announced any show times yet for the desired theater for our Revenger Halloween watch party. For uh, it's going to be at UA Midway Stadium Nine that night. But they haven't announced the exact times, but that's gonna be happening any day now because they've already announced the show times for the weekend prior. And they and right now the Midway has announced all everything up to that Thursday, the 24th. So pretty soon they're going to be announcing when those tickets go on sale. And I will be purchasing one or two rows of the of seats for the seven o'clock-ish showing of Halloween. But as a quick reminder for those of you who perhaps haven't listened to the last couple of episodes, you know, we're having a watch party. You can come see Halloween with us. It's going to be a bunch of our you know fellow Revenge of the Fans contributors and podcasters, as well as listeners and supporters. We'll get to see the movie together. We'll get to go out afterward and have a nice little post-mortem discussion of what we thought of the film and just kind of general, you know, meet and greet and hang out. And then there's a second half of the night that you have the option of joining in on. I want to thank Luke. Luke and his wife are going to be joining us. Luke, whose last name is like, uh, I never know how to say it. Luke, I'm sorry. I love you, man. You guys are awesome. Um, I love talking to you guys at, at House of Wax after we saw Infinity War. Your your you, your wife's a trip, and I think uh, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But Luke and his wife, uh, you know, RSVP'd yesterday, and right now, in general, it's kind of it's starting to uh, starting to get a little a little crowded in there. So if you want to come join us. For the Halloween Revenger Watch Party on October 27th, you can come do that, and the second half of the night, which I was about to get into, is the fact that my band is playing a show about 10 minutes away from the movie theater. We go on the stage at 11 o'clock. It's going to be one hell of a show. It's our first show in nearly three years. And it's going to be a hell of a time. I'm going to be singing and dancing up on stage. We're going to be doing some Guns and Roses and some Aerosmith and some of our originals. And it's going to be the thrill of a lifetime for me to be able to entertain you guys in that way. You know, you guys are used to my writing and my podcasting. You've never seen me up on a stage, which is a whole part of my life that, you know, I rarely get to indulge anymore. But it's a big part of who I am and how I ended up doing any of this, actually. It was my love of performing and being able to use myself as a big tool, as a big instrument to make you feel things. You know, an actor's responsibility at its core is to make you feel things and take you on a ride. And my desire to do that and my love of doing that is what got me into DJing, it's what got me into podcasting and writing and wanting to elicit a response from you just by using my tools, you know, reaching into my bag of tricks and giving you something to, to feel and respond to. So to be able to do that for some of you, it's going to kind of be a dream come true on October 27th. So I hope those of you who are coming are also considering doing the second part of that. If you're interested in more details or you want to spend that evening with us, uh, email me at mfr at revengeofthefans.com, and I will set aside some tickets for you, okay? So now, now we can start the show. So the first thing that I really want to dive into is all of this new information on the live action Star Wars TV series that's coming to Disney Play courtesy of John Favreau. So this week we found out the name of the series, which is going to be called The Mandalorian. We also found out some of the directors who are going to be involved with the season. And I'm excited because it means I get to see one of my favorite names ever over and over again until the show comes out. And that name is Taika Waititi. I, I, I just love saying that name. For those of you longtime listeners know that back around last year, around the time that Thor Ragnarok was it was you know front and center, uh, I found any which way to slip in the name Taika Waititi, and I'm never gonna say it just the last name or just the first name. It's gotta be together, all right. So Taika Waititi, and another fun one too, Rick Famuiwa is also going to be directing some episodes, as well as Deborah Chow and Bryce Dallas Howard and Dave Filoni. I mean, the the amount of talent that they've amassed for this series so far is wonderful. It's like, what? John Favreau is like, you could tell he's got his finger on the pulse of like, who are the exciting up-and-coming filmmakers who I want to help kind of bring up to that next level or who I think can help me shape a truly special corner of the Star Wars galaxy? So, um, so far, I'm in love with all that and the premise, the idea of, uh, of a lone gunfighter out on the outskirts, far from where the, uh yeah, the, the control of the New Republic and the Empire and all that stuff. I just, this is so my speed. This is so what I've been dying to see, this kind of show, especially too, this idea of the lone gunfighter, because it reminds me of one of the cooler aspects of the original trilogy, Remember, amongst the, you know, it was kind of a genre mashup when George Lucas first introduced it. It had elements of, you know, it was like a space opera. It was also like a 1940s serial, you know, with those Flash Gordon type things. But it was also a space western. You know, that whole thing with walking into like the cantina and Mos Eisley and, you know, Han Solo with the gun on his hip. He was like a cowboy. You know, the, the idea of the space western is very exciting. And I kind of feel like we've gotten away from that over the years. You know, I mean, it even inspired Joss Whedon, you know, Firefly in and of itself is a space Western. And if you look at Nathan Fillion's character, it's very, you know, he he reminds you of Han Solo a little bit, doesn't he? Because that idea of a Western with its outlaws and its gunslingers and all that sort of stuff, but out in space where there's aliens and everything is just bigger and more, you know, epic. You know, the idea of that is very exciting. And so when I hear that this is going to be about a lone gunslinger and then we get that first image which shows him wearing his Mandalorian helmet, the bounty hunter walking around with the rifle in his you know, sticking out of his back, like, "I'm so in." And I have a feeling that Favreau is going to kind of bring this back to its roots and kind of revisit that whole idea of a space Western. And then let's talk about the picture itself, too, because the picture is pretty cool. The picture is like, you know, they could have released something that looks very glossy, something that comes from, it looks like a futuristic space age, you know, soundstage type thing, something and maybe even made you think about the prequels or they could have, you know, they, they could have shown any number of things, but what do they show? They show a very gritty looking character walking around a very just lived in authentic looking town. It looks like a real tangible set. This is not some green screen stuff. The suit, you could see all the different detailing and all the different layers. It, it doesn't look like perfectly tailored to the character. It looks, you know, it just it, it doesn't look overly polished. I like that it looks a little gritty. It actually reminds me of Gareth Edwards' aesthetic in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, where it's, it's, it's meant to look a little more real, a little darker, a little more just grainy and authentic and not just a high gloss, fancy schmancy Hollywood production. So I'm very excited. The Mandalorian is going to be probably you know the killer app. It's going to be the thing that makes me get Disney Play, even though I hate the name of that service. By the way, Disney Play, awful. By the way, it should it should be like Disney Magic, shouldn't it? It's the Magic Kingdom after all. Disney, Disney Magic. I think would be better than Play. Play just sounds like what is this? Like another one? Like like a gaming app? I don't know. I don't like that part. But either way, I'm going to get it because The Mandalorian's on there. And uh, this looks like something I'm not going to want to miss. The other big thing I want to just get into, the the big sort of current event, is that today is the day that Venom comes out. And boy, what a ride it's been to be covering this movie these last couple of weeks. And I kind of went on my own little crusade against uh, people of my ilk, fellow, you know, podcasting reporter, commentator, colleagues of mine, who seem to have come out with guns blazing for this movie, even long before they'd even seen it. Um, So I've kind of, you know, I've kind of been ranting against them, and I wanted to form my own opinion, and I finally got to see it earlier this week, and I released my video review and my written review, so I don't need to necessarily rehash all that, please visit revengeofthefans.com and you can find it there, or subscribe to our YouTube channel because I've also got the video version up there. But just to sort of recap, I think it's a perfectly fine movie. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, it's not good or great. It's not a dumpster fire. I don't think it's terrible or awful or some people, you know, we're trying to say it's like Catwoman level bad. Like, no, listen, it's a flawed movie. And it's not, you know, it could have been probably much, much more, but what's there is fun. It's diverting and it moves nicely. And if you're just looking for an escape and you love Venom and you love Tom Hardy, go check it out. If you don't like, if you don't love Tom Hardy or Venom though, then it's a hard pass. But the thing that I guess I'm just sort of um, mystified by... In these last couple days as now the professional critics, quote unquote critics, have chimed in and Rotten Tomatoes now has its sort of final score and all that sort of stuff. Is, this, is the way that like the canon keeps coming up, the continuity, its, its relation or lack thereof to Spider-Man. The reason that this confounds me is that what does that have to do with the movie itself? That is an exterior concern. If you are a professional critic and you are being asked to see a film and judge it based on what is on the screen, what does Spider-Man have to do with it? What does its relation to the Marvel Cinematic Universe have to do with anything? You'll notice in my review, I don't even mention Spider-Man, aside from just doing a reference to the, the old cartoon series, because this version of Venom reminds me of that version of Venom, and it makes me so excited, because it, you know, that cartoon is really what made me a huge Spider-Man fan and got me into Venom to begin with. But I don't mention Spider-Man because that's not what this is about. I don't, you know, that, that that is a completely separate issue. As a critic, you're there to review the film that is on the screen, the way it's directed, the way it's acted, the way the plot flows, the way the visuals look, how does the score make you feel, what is the editing like. Talk about the movie itself. If you're talking about Spider-Man anywhere in your review, that means that you are reviewing the movie that you wish it was, rather than the movie that's there. And that is not your job as a critic. I hate to break it to you. But if you're going in there basing this on, well, I would have done it differently, or I wish it would have had this, then you're a fool. You don't seem to, you've completely misunderstood what the purpose of your job is. And I expect that sort of thing from bloggers because we we're we kind of, you know, expected to sort of spout off at the mouth and give our opinions and all that sort of stuff. And that's fine. But from a professional film critic, a person whose sole job is to critique the movie that's in theaters and let people know what they thought of the movie. I have a hard time believing that a professional critic really gives a damn about whether or not Spider-Man's involved with this movie. That, I, that's so besides the point. And what I think this is kind of bringing us to is the way the lines have been blurred between a critic and a blogger, because they're not the same thing. In fact, a longtime listener and and a a supporter of mine, you know, when he saw one of my tweets earlier this week where I kind of, you know, I said that critics like such and such and I didn't and critics this and whatever. Someone was like, well, aren't you a critic? And I'm like, no, I had to explain. I'm not a critic. I'm a blogger. I'm here to give my thoughts on things. I'm here to pass along news. I'm here to give you my own analysis and all that sort of stuff. But a film critic in its traditional sense is a very different animal. You know, a film critic is supposed to look at things very objectively. They're supposed to bring a very, very knowing eye. And, and usually they're part of things called film societies. A lot of times they've studied film in college. Sometimes they are themselves failed filmmakers, which is sometimes used as a knock on them. Like, oh, you're a failure at it. So now you go and just critique others. But no, but I, I, that's not a bad thing because it means that they come from a place of, they at least know how it gets done. They have an innate understanding of the filmmaking process, of what it is to create this type of art, and and their whole life is about seeing films and critiquing the films. A film critic is a separate job than what a blogger is. But in recent years, it's been blurred because now you got bloggers being accepted onto platforms like Rotten Tomatoes and now their opinions will carry just as much weight as a film critic who has spent maybe, who knows, half their life learning how to critique films are now being put up on the same level as some schmuck at home in his underwear saying he hated Venom. Like it's, not every opinion counts the same. Some people actually are... Experts. I know it's a shocking thought nowadays because everyone and their mother thinks they're an expert just because they're able to string along a couple of words and sound moderately intelligent while reciting them. But not everyone is a critic. Not everyone is an expert. Having an opinion doesn't make you an expert. It just makes you opinionated. Your opinions might stink. You might be coming at things from a place of bias and confusion and understanding. You might have a political agenda. You might have an axe to grind. You might have been let down by that filmmaker a few years ago and you're still butthurt about it, so now you want to take it out on their new film. All right, opinions in and of themselves don't mean anything. What is your education? What is your training? What are your credentials? What is it that you've done with your life that actually makes you a professional, okay? Not enough people are asking these questions nowadays. The, the level, the, the, the playing field is being leveled to the point where everyone is the same level of expert. And suddenly, like, the the, the opinion of Joe Blow blogger, I don't mean Joe Blow.com, just, you know, Joe Schmo, let's say, so just some average blogger who you don't know where they're coming from, what they do, what their credentials are, anything about them, their voice is up there now with, like, Richard Roper. You know what I mean? Like, no, that shouldn't be the case. Richard Roper, some of the elite critics, there's a reason they're elite critics. There's a reason that they make a living for the last 20 years just writing reviews and publishing reviews about movies. It's because they are experts, not because they just got a laptop one day and decided, I'm gonna be a blogger. Like, that doesn't make you an expert. So I just, you know, when I hear a lot of this stuff and the fact that now it's made its way onto Rotten Tomatoes, we're in the consensus in the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, there's some line in there about how it would have benefited by being more connected to Spider-Man. I'm just, oh, okay, so the you know, the, the wheels have come off this thing. This experiment of the internet and Rotten Tomatoes and the blog sites and, and kind of giving everyone access to be able to follow their muse. And do what I'm doing, by the way. I'm not trying to be a hypocrite. You know, I'm grateful that I'm being given a chance to create a platform, be heard, be listened to, be, you know, all that sort of thing, it's, it's amazing. But I know that my opinion doesn't count the same as someone whose life is this stuff, who's built up this whole huge repertoire and toolkit to be able to analyze a film in ways that I would never even think of. I know that I don't that my voice shouldn't carry the same weight as theirs, but right now that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And it's, it, to me, it's very upsetting because you see it happening everywhere. Just to sort of relate it to my other job too, because I see it in my other job. You know, as a DJ, I interact with lots of other freelance professionals. And I've had to, I've had so many conversations with photographers, photographers who went to photography school, people who've invested thousands and thousands of dollars on the best gear, who they've learned the art form of lining up their shot and the lighting and knowing how to make the most dramatic image. And like they are, like this is what they've done. They, they've dedicated their lives to becoming the best professional photographer they can. And now they're competing against people who just went to micro center and bought a nice camera and then printed up some cards on Vistaprint and just said, I'm a I'm a photographer now. And the camera does have the work because they have all these great features that basically cut out the middleman of actually needing to learn how to be a photographer. And they can just skip right to taking a nice picture. And now you have this photographer who's been doing this 20 years who you know would ordinarily charge you know, $2,500 to shoot a wedding for 10 hours, competing against some schmuck living at home with his mother who says, I'll do it for 500 bucks. Like it's created this scenario where like, again, if everyone's an expert, then no one's an expert. It's leveled the playing field in a way where now you have people competing against other people and it's a completely like faulty comparison between them. But some people don't pay attention to those nuances some people don't know the difference between a real photographer and some schmuck with a camera. And all they know is, oh, well, the schmuck with the camera wants to charge me a quarter of what the other guy is, so I'll go with that one. Same thing happens for me as a DJ, too. I've been doing this 16 years. I mentored under other DJs. I, 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 I Paid my dues. I, I used to wrap cables and set up speakers and I used to lug and listen and practice. I, work on, I worked under a DJ who had been doing this 30 years and he would let me, you know, one set at a time. He'd say, okay, why don't you do a little Motown set for this crowd, let, let show me what you got. And I trained under him. And then eventually I got to be a DJ. I even flew to Las Vegas and took a special course on how to be a better master of ceremonies with, with one of the most respected MCs in the world. And I learned and I honed my craft. But guess who I'm competing with? Any prick who goes to a store and buys a laptop and a couple of speakers and just decides, I'm gonna be a DJ. So when I'm out there trying to charge what I would charge, then I have, oh, well, I I know this guy who would do it for 300 bucks. Like, well, good luck with that guy, you know? I'm sorry, I I don't wanna, I I kinda went off on a tangent here. But just, everyone needs to keep that in mind, that right now, with all of the wonderful you know, advances in technology, with how easy it is for people to start pursuing their favorite hobbies or interests as a career, you've got to understand that not all people are created equal. Not everyone in a given field is created equal. There have to be experts. We have to have people whose voices and opinions and skills we put up on a pedestal because they've proven themselves to be great at what they do. Right now, I feel like we're losing that and it's just becoming one level playing field. And it's just, it's, it, it's upsetting to see. You know, it, kind of circling back to the discussion I had with Mark O'Connell last week, can we really have icons or gods or role models anymore? People that we look to as just the ultimate examples of the pinnacle of what they can do? Because nowadays, with the ease of access, with the way seemingly anyone can just do it, all these people seem far less special now, you know. You even see it like with, with acting. You know how they say like, "There's no more movie stars." They say, "Oh, you know, a star can't open a movie anymore." You know, when I was a kid, you can just put you know Harrison Ford's name over the title, and bam, that movie was going to make bank and it was going to be a big deal. Nowadays, you can't really do that. And why is that? It's because we've grounded all our heroes. Now, the w- becoming famous it no longer is a difficult thing to do. You know, right now. You know, you you can have a a YouTuber. We look, the irony, this show is on YouTube and some of you are watching this right now. You could have someone doing what I'm doing, speaking into a webcam every week and they could fire up enough people and create enough buzz that all of a sudden now, they're a famous YouTuber. And maybe they'll get their own series on Netflix, like the girl with the the show uh, Haters Back Off. Like anyone, there's so many ways to become quote unquote famous And with the advent of cable television and reality TV and how every network has been starved to create new stars so they can have cheap talent to push out there as quote unquote celebrities to help get higher ratings. But these people maybe have no business actually being in front of a camera. But right now they're being groomed and turned into stars. Like right now, that's why it's just it's hard to find like a movie star anymore. That's why I say Tom Cruise to me is the final movie star. Tom Cruise is that last remnant of that generation of actors who there's this mystique around them who who are they their movie looks really cool, and I want to see it because I want to see this star do their thing. so many other actors nowadays it's just become like you're you're we see you on t m z walking your dog and getting to a fight with your girlfriend, and you know it's like. The entry level to being a celebrity isn't even what it was anymore. We've we've removed the entry level qualifications from so many different jobs that I'm just worried about where we're headed. And right now you have a bunch of amateurs who happen to have a bunch of Twitter followers and know how to generate fear, hateful clicks to their site who are now being seen as influencers and who are using that platform for perhaps less than stellar reasons, and their voice is being given just as much importance as people who do this seriously and legitimately and don't have an axe to grind or an, a hidden agenda. And it worries the hell out of me. And I, I have a feeling at some point, this is all gonna implode and hopefully some reason will return to all of this. But I just wonder how many wonderful films, how many great artists, how many different things are going to be destroyed before we can get to that before we have that realization then hmm this weird hive mind mentality where you have all of these different voices with all of their hidden agendas suddenly determining the fate of a film or a project or an artist or a singer or a director i just wonder you know how long how many potentially wonderful things are going to be destroyed by this hive mind made up of quote-unquote experts who don't actually know what they're talking about um, but okay I digress uh, check out Venom if you like Tom Hardy and, and, and Venom all right I don't know how I got into all of that but uh, all right so changing up gears just a tad I was having a conversation with another colleague of mine about the flash and you know I'm starting to get a little worried I am we're both starting to get a little worried you know there hasn't been anything new since I updated you guys about it uh, like two or three episodes ago but that's kind of the reason why we're getting worried because like I told you a while back the character breakdowns were being set to be delivered to managers in Hollywood like a month and a half ago managers were you know they were alerted to the fact that character breakdowns were on the way so they can begin the casting process But then something happened. And I heard that, yeah, they don't have a casting director anymore or they they didn't have one lined up just yet. But now here we are three or four weeks later and there's been zero movement. And that is atypical. That is not typically how these things go. So there is cause for concern. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the issue is. It might literally just be like, they're they're still retooling the script so they don't want to start the casting yet because certain characters are being rewritten or cut out or something. It could be something like that, just technical. Or maybe the movie is kind of back into some sort of limbo. Remember, for whatever reason, Warner Brothers has had a very hard time getting this Flash movie going. And maybe it's just hit its latest snag. I don't need to recap all the other times that the Flash has come close to happening and not But right now, it just seems like for whatever reason, the studio is having a hard time getting the flash off the ground. And that is notable in and of itself. Uh, On the positive end, I'm hearing really good things about Aquaman. You know, more test screenings have taken place. More people who've seen the film are starting to let people know behind the scenes what they thought of it. And overall, I'm hearing that the film is very, very good. So that's making me very excited. You know, I don't want to, like, go off of the opinions of a few, but at this point, it's starting to collect. It's starting to, before I only knew about two people, now I've heard, like, seven or eight people, and it's starting to kind of become a thing where it's being spoken of consistently, positively. So... That's kind of, you know, th- th- that's good news if you're an Aquaman fan. Because, you know, I want that movie to hit big. And that's one of the reasons I'm so nervous about that release date. But what are you going to do? You know, last week I did a Periscope shortly after putting up episode 74 where I discussed, um, you know, th- they had just announced the whole thing about uh, Alita Battle Angel getting delayed and put into February. And then Deadpool... being re-released in PG-13 form on the same day. And my concerns for the fact that Deadpool 2, Bumblebee, and Aquaman are all vying for the same eyeballs. Um, So, you know, so that still worries me. That's still something that I don't know why they're going this route with it. I don't know why they think it's okay, but they do. (laughs) Um, But check this out. They tried to do it to me again. The last couple of weeks, whenever I've done the Fanboy podcast, as soon as I'm done recording, some sort of big news hits, and I'm like, oh, I wish it would have hit a little sooner so I could have included it in the show, and that just happened. So what you're hearing right now is me adding something after the fact, because I recorded this little Aquaman stuff that you just heard, uh, you know, about an hour ago. And what happened? During that time, and I'd already finalized the episode and exported it, they released a new Aquaman trailer. So you know what? This time I'm not going to be caught with my pants down. I'm actually going to... I'm, I'm breaking the episode back open just to sneak in a reaction to the new Aquaman trailer. All right? So let's do this. <clears throat> so I just checked out the, uh, the new extended version of the trailer. And uh, you know... I'm very much sold on this thing. I really like how it looks. I love the visual aesthetic. I love the the, the sweeping scope of the story. It looks like it's going to have a lot of fun, action, adventure. It's going to, but not just fun, because, you know, you know me, I'm not into the whole just, you know, let's do this just for laugh stuff. There also seems to be a lot of emotional underpinnings in here and stuff about, you know, Arthur's legacy and his destiny and his true heritage and being, you know, uh, a son of the sea or something of the land, whatever he called it. But like, it looks really cool. Like, I'm gonna get the feels. I'm not just gonna see a superhero doing, you know, fun stuff, cool stuff. I'm also gonna get to, like, witness the birth of a hero. And to me, that looks very exciting. Yeah. If I have any qualms, I don't know. It's, and this is not a good one to have, mind you, but The one liners from Arthur, like I could have just peed on it like uh, this is, you know, I I hope that this is not a recurring thing. Through both of the trailers they've released so far, I'm I'm sold, I'm sold, I'm sold until Arthur himself opens his mouth with some sort of cringy one liner that just kind of totally sucks the air out of the room. So, I don't know if that's just, you know, for the trailers, they want to make sure people realize that he's more of a quippy, you know, smart-ass hero than your average square-jawed hero. I don't know what they're going for exactly. But so far, he has oddly been my least favorite part. You know, just, you know, in terms of when he delivers those one-liners. When we see him in the action sequences and at the end there when he's in the orange and green suit holding the trident and all that sort of stuff. I loved it. I think he's got a great look. I loved his shtick in Justice League, but um I I have some concerns about the 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 sort of crude one-liners. But uh aside from that, I think the trailer looks pretty phenomenal. Uh I'm very intrigued by that sequence. It looks like it's set like in Greece or something, where it looks like uh Blake uh what's her name? <laughs> the girlfriend, the 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 I have no idea. Amber Heard. With Amber Heard's character being chased by a red Master Chief, uh, Master Chief, uh, I'm intrigued to see all that plays out. You know, it, it looks like James Wan is channeling his inner, you know, furious seven-ness in terms of having like a lot of great looking action and spectacle and likable heroes and all that sort of stuff. But it also seems like the way it's written, it's also going to have some emotional heft to it. So all in all, I'm very happy with this. I just hope that the one-liners don't ruin it for me. And I want to address that. I don't want to take too much time on this because I know some of yous are going to roll your eyes uh, that I'm even addressing it. And I wasn't going to. I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I was going to touch this. But, you know, enough people have brought it to my attention and it, it, it's enough of a topic out there that I want to devote at least a minute to it. All right. So give me a minute of your time. Uh, there's all these pictures of Ben Affleck walking around and he's looking all super jacked. And there's some tabloid called Hollywood Life uh, says that he wants to be Batman again and that's why he's in such great shape and so on and so forth. Okay, listen to me. He has another film to do right now. It's called The Has-Been. And he wouldn't be getting this jacked unless it was for The Has-Been. Because his director for that would not want him looking all oh, if he's if his character wasn't supposed to. So yeah, you, just keep that in mind. Because if the if if Batman was happening next, if we knew that Matt Reeves was filming Batman in a month or two, then you could be like, hmm, it looks like he's getting in Batman shape just as just in time for Batman to start filming. There's some connections to be made there, but that's not the case. He's working on a whole other movie in the time before we get to a Batman. So that means that this look, this buff, beefed up, jacked up look, which is atypical for Affleck, by the way, he doesn't typically look that, You know, that's not his look. He's always been kind of like a guy with an average to slim build. He's only ever been huge for certain roles. He only does this for certain roles. And it looks like, for whatever reason, for the has-been, they want him to look like that. So hold your horses. Okay? Just because he's jacked doesn't mean it's for Batman. In fact, it means it's for the has-been. All right? Now, if he stays in that sort of shape after the has-been has wrapped, then we can talk about it. But you know what? By then, we're going to have some sort of official answer on who's playing Batman anyway. So, for now, don't get excited. Don't read too much into it. Yes, he's huge, but he has a whole other movie to film before the Batman even enters full-on production. So you should not be reading so much into the fact that he's looking big and cut right now, okay? I, I hate to be, you know, I, I, I hate to squash your dreams. Especially because, remember, I love Batfleck. I want him back. He's the closest I've ever come to the Batman that I've always dreamt of seeing on the screen. He just is. He is. He, to me, he's the closest to the Batman, the animated series Batman that I've always wanted to see done in live action. He's that. So I'm very, very excited, and I mean, not that I'm very, very excited, but like, I would be very excited if it was announced that he was coming back. But right now, unfortunately, there is no reason to think that he is, okay? Now, let's move on. Uh, Earlier this week, I got to finally check out one of the things on my vaunted watch list it's become a bit of a, of a running gag between myself and some other RTF contributors and supporters, especially Adam Basciano, who reviews a bunch of great things for our site. Um, you know, my watch list is like 79 things deep at this point, because so many people have so many things they want me to watch. TV series, movies, they want me to read the Watchmen comic book. Like, There's just so many different things that you guys want me to ingest and then give you thoughts on. And I'm so helplessly behind. Um, But I finally got to see one this week. So Tavo Borrego, who I've mentioned in the past, he actually goes through the trouble of buying me movies and sending me them. He's done it twice now. First of all, he sent me his copy of Superman versus the Elite, because I think he got like a new version of it, so he gave me his. But then when it came down to uh, Big Trouble in Little China, he bought me my own Blu-ray off Amazon and he had it shipped to my house. So Thabo has gone through such lengths to make me see his referrals that I feel like, well, I, I kind of have to now. So, I finally saw Superman versus the Elite Elite in its entirety. It's an animated film. I I assume it'll be on the DC Universe platform if it isn't already. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. That is such a wonderful Superman story. I had no idea. I had no idea. You know, I, I don't watch nearly enough animated stuff to know. Uh, I always hear about him, everyone. And right now, you know, uh, Claudia Balboa and a bunch of other big-time Superman fans keep telling me that I need to see the Death of Superman movie that recently came out. So that's another one that I have to try to get. I have to find where it is. If it's on the DC Universe platform, maybe that, that should be my incentive to just buy the subscription and see it. But regardless, I saw Superman vs. the Elite, and I just... I was floored by the way that it understands the Superman character and the way it puts him into a modern setting and puts him around some dark, crazy stuff, but keeps him pure. Because that's always been my thing, too. When they they say, oh, Superman's too simplistic and he needs to be more dark and complex and yada, yada, yada. I've always said that's not necessarily true. What you have to do is take the idealistic classic Superman and put him in a dark world. If the world around him is dark and complex and morally, you know, either bankrupt or morally, you know, dubious, you put him in a position now where he's facing an ideological threat, which I spoke about last week with Mark O'Connell. You know, that's how you solve the problem of how wholesome he is. That's how you actually address that. You don't do it by turning him into a flying Batman. I'm not saying that anyone's done that, but, you know, I've had my concerns. I've had my qualms with the way Henry Cavill's Superman has been directed to to be portrayed in these last few films. So, you know, the answer is not making him dark and brooding. It's putting your classic Superman in a world that perhaps has moved on from his ideals And that's what Superman vs. the elite does so well It puts him in a modern setting where people now are questioning the value of a Superman. If all he does is capture criminals and put them in prison and goes through due process of law and these criminals always end up back on the streets and they end up killing others and they end up doing, you know, committing atrocities after a while, isn't some of that blood on Superman's hands? if he has the ability to permanently stop them through death like killing them off, which is, it's intense to even like talk about Superman doing that, but you know, he's done it and I'm cool with him doing it. But you know, if the whole point is he has the opportunity to stop them forever, but instead all he keeps doing is just temporarily keeping them at bay, but they keep coming out after a while. It's almost like he becomes responsible and in the eyes of the people of earth, If a hero rose or a group of heroes like the elite arose with the promise of when we stop a bad guy, you're never going to hear from them again. You could see how Superman would have a whole conflict of having to try to deal with this, of having to ask himself the tough questions of, am I doing the right thing? Is my approach effective? Does everyone have a point? Should I be using my powers to more permanently stop these threats? It's very—it's fascinating stuff, great questions, and it keeps Superman true to who he is. It puts him in a modern context where now we get to look at him perhaps in a way that we'd never thought of before. And I just, I loved it. I I just, I, I thought it was a beautifully done movie. I think the way, it also shows like how truly awesome his powers are or can be. You know, a lot of times we just kind of get caught up and he can fly and he can lift things and he has the heat vision and whatever. In this movie, we get to see what he can really do when Superman's sort of unchained and wants to use his powers to their full potential, their full capacity. Uh, and it's so cool to watch. It really is so cool to watch. Um, so definitely check out Superman vs. the Elite. You know, it's it got me thinking about my ideal Superman movie. Because, you know... I'm sure it's, it, it'll come as a shock to absolutely no one that I have a Superman movie, an ideal Superman movie in my, in my head, in my heart, that I've, I would love to see. And I've always kind of toyed with the idea of letting you guys in on what it is. And I think, you know what, there's no time like the present. So let's go ahead and just kind of go into a little of what, I, what my perfect Superman movie would be. And no, I'm not going to give you some like blow by blow full on, you know, here's the dialogue and here's the scene from scene to scene. Like, no, I'm just going to give you the bullet points, just the, the fundamental building blocks of what this story would be. OK, so first and foremost, how do we deal with Krypton? What is the Krypton mythology in my version of Superman? So this is kind of like the big one. And to me, it'll, it'll inform everything that comes afterward and fundamentally perhaps change Superman's mission here on Earth or why it is that he does what he does, is understanding what happens in my version of the Krypton myth. So in my version of the Krypton myth, the planet is not destroyed by some sort of scientific thing. It has nothing to do with instability at the core of the planet or its you know, its distance to the sun or whatever. In my version of Krypton, the planet is destroyed by whatever their equivalent of nuclear war is, the nuclear option. You know the thing that we're always scared about here on Earth, World War III, where a bunch of different you know, countries that have access to nuclear power launch their nuclear missiles at the same time and ultimately just basically destroy the Earth in the process. So in my version of the myth, Krypton would be destroyed by that. Where a once proud planet, we used to go out and explore the cosmos and do all of these great altruistic things and they were the symbol of hope for a universe, for a galaxy, eventually splits up into warring factions, has its own sort of civil war going on. And so the movie opens up with Jorel bringing his findings to a leader of one side of this conflict because he's been deeply embedded on the other side trying to find out what they're working on, what their motivations are. And while he was there, he discovered that they found access to the same deadly power that his side has gotten. And he knows that this is going to lead to the end of the planet, that right now with the way things are going, they're going to destroy themselves. And also while there, he learned that they're not as bad as he was always told. So he's trying to urge his leaders to look for diplomacy but his leaders, of course, they're proud and they're stubborn and they are hell bent on teaching that other side a lesson. So now Jorel sees any day now the writing is on the wall this war is about to consume krypton it's about to destroy it forever and he's not allowed to talk about it because if he is it'll be seen as you know heresy it'll be seen as treason it'll be seen as he's a traitor to his side of things and then if he got if he goes and tries to join the other side they'll they won't trust him if he reveals that he worked for the other side they'll kill him sight you know on the spot so jor That's what motivates him to to send Kal-El off on a secret ship off the planet right before he knows that the planet is about to be destroyed for good. Now, this is important because it's going to inform the morality of this Superman. It's going to inform his mission. It's going to inform what the Kryptonian AI that Jor-El sends with him tries to teach him when he eventually gets to the Fortress of Solitude and learns what happened to his proud people. And we're going to find out later on that Jor-El's hopes and dreams for Kal-El are to help Earth avoid the same fate as Krypton. That one of the reasons that he chose uh, Earth is not not, not just because it would give his son all of these wonderful abilities, but because he sees that we're on a similar path. That humans are about, you know, that, that somewhere down the line, if things continue the way they are, Humans are going to destroy themselves and the planet, and he wants his son to go there to help Earth avoid the same fate as Krypton. So to me, that's like the fundamental building block of Superman's mission on Earth, where he comes from, and all that sort of stuff. And then mind you, I would even toy with the idea of like towards the end of the first movie in this new franchise... You know, we never actually saw Krypton blow up. It seemed like it was about to and it seemed like everyone was wiped out. But maybe at the end of the first new Superman movie or perhaps in a post-credit thing, unless that's considered kind of, you know, cheating, maybe we find out that there are some Kryptonian survivors and that lays down what the sequel is going to be because he finds out. He'd always assumed that Krypton had been destroyed, but then he finds out in his and his during his fight with the final boss that Krypton existed beyond Kal-El's exit. All right. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Also, in my version of the Superman myth and what and something I would want to see explored uh, during the portion of the film that, that shows young Callel or young Clark growing up here in, in Smallville, because all that would be very traditional. He'd be found by Jonathan and Martha in a field, and they would raise him and all that good stuff. But as part of that portion of the film, I'd want to establish that Clark is innately a curious person, a curious being, I should say, since he's Kryptonian, not necessarily a person. But he's curious. He's always asking probing questions about, why do these people do this? Why, why you know, I, I got bullied today at school. Mom, why, why do they do this to me? And he's always just trying to understand human nature and why things unfold the way that they do and try to know why it is that things happen. He, I, I want him to have an innate curiosity. And the reason for that would be, I've always wanted the journalistic element of Clark Kent to be organic to him. I, I, I never liked when it was just a disguise. I never liked when it was just, you know, it's a way for me to go into dangerous situations without anyone asking questions. It's, you know, oh, if I'm in the newsroom, I could hear about breaking emergencies as they happen. You know, those are kind of like the traditional reasons for why he becomes Clark. You know, that alter ego at the Daily Planet. For me, it would always be way more interesting to have a Clark who just innately is a journalist. You know, he always wants to go and ask tough questions, get tough answers, and, and, and bring truth to the people to try to find peace, to try to illuminate a problem that nobody's talking about. That's what I always loved about Mark Wade's birthright, where during his like college age years, we see he's traveling the world trying to understand why certain things happen. I want that element here. I want to show that Clark Kent himself was born to be a great reporter. And so when he eventually gets the job at the planet, it's be, it, it's on the back of all of this wonderful work he's already done. He's already embedded himself and, and been published in the National Geographic and Time Magazine. He's already shown himself to be someone who is, is fascinated by the human condition and understanding why we do the things we do. And that's why too, when he eventually finds out about his true heritage and ends up at the Fortress of Solitude, you know, it, it's like a perfect marriage of like, Jorel wanted me to understand humanity to help prevent this. And who's better suited to do this than me? Because I, in other words, I just, I want that to be part of who he is. And I want it to be kind of just a natural extension. So when he finds out about his true heritage, it, it strengthens it. It all works together. It's not just I'll pretend to be a reporter, you know, so that anyway, I think I, I just beat that Uh, horse until it was dead and bloodied, but that's important to me. Um, Then similar to what I was discussing last week with Mark O'Connell, you know, I love the idea of having like a President Luthor. In this version of the myth, I would want him as a politician who everyone sees as this great and wonderful altruistic guy, but who in the shadows is perhaps, you know, not all he seems to be. I like that version of the character. And to sort of uh, reference something that I tweeted out earlier this week based on the recommendation of Isaac Wolf, uh, my friend from Sweden. Uh, Isaac mentioned that you know he's, he, he's baffled by the fact that Tom Hanks, the legendary Academy Award-winning Tom Hanks mentioned many, many years ago that he would love to be in a superhero movie, but yet no one's taken him up on that. How do you get an actor of this caliber basically saying, hey guys, I'd like to do a comic book movie and then never take advantage of that fact. He's baffled by that. And I'm not as baffled as he is because to me, he's not necessarily a shoe in to be anything. He's older and his, I don't know, I, don't, I can't necessarily see him in his, in, in, in his inherently kind, very Mr. Rogers ish nature being in a superhero movie. But I was thinking about it in conjunction with this idea of mine that I think he'd be a great Lex Luthor. And he'd be great for this version of him, where to the people, he seems like this affable, approachable, very kind human president, but then we'd get to see that darker side, and wouldn't that be shocking to see Tom Hanks be that dark and that evil and that sinister in his ways? It would kind of show him off in a way that we've never looked at him before, you know? And in my version of the story, somewhere along the way, as he's trying to do research on this Superman menace, Because I would want that to be, I'd want to keep that element too from the comics where Superman, where Lex just doesn't trust Superman. He sees it, he sees that there's some sort of, something inherently wrong about everyone worshipping this flying alien in a red cape with all these godlike powers. He would not be a fan of that. Um, and, and maybe even like to his face, he he, you know, he he lauds him, he holds him up on a pedestal, gives him the key to the city and all that sort of stuff. But then behind closed doors, he's trying to find out how do we stop this guy because he's going to try to destroy us. You know, he, he doesn't trust Superman. So somewhere along the way, while he's trying to figure out a way to stop him, he comes into some Kryptonian technology. Either a meteor landed somewhere in an Area 51 type thing, and they've been developing some Kryptonian tech. And they came across an AI, an AI that they call Brainiac. Okay, you see where I'm going with this? And he discovers that through this AI, if he puts it into the internet and he kind of embeds it into our society as like a sort of Siri sort of thing, a sort of sentient you know, Alexa AI that everyone just wants to have in their house and have on their phone, he knows he can use that AI to manipulate the people to do whatever he wants. And to turn them against Superman by planting fake news about conspiracies about Superman, about just trying to turn him, you turn the people against him. And in his mind, of course, in his own warped mind, Luthor is thinking he's doing what's best for humanity. He thinks we need to make, we need to awaken people to who he really is. So, yes, we're lying a little bit, but all these stories that we're ginning up about him could really happen one day, and people need to be aware of that. So in his mind, in his heart, and like all true great complex villains, he thinks he's doing us all a service. So through this Kryptonian AI, that, that everyone is just allowing, because they give it like a funky name. You know, they, Alexa or Siri, one of those types of things. Um, and everyone wants it. And little by little, it's starting to turn people against Superman. And it's starting to do uh, kind of like what the elite did in Superman versus the elite, where people start questioning, are his methods really helpful? Is this really what we want? And suddenly Superman has to, has to start answering tough questions and addressing all these wild theories about him and what his true intentions are. And before you know it, he starts to become like an enemy of the people. So I, I really like that, the idea of that. But then what happens? Like all true super you know, artificial intelligences, it eventually becomes self-aware. It becomes almost like Terminator type situation where Skynet takes over. And then we find out though, that this was always the plan. This was always set to happen because Brainiac is out in space on his ship and he's the one who sent that AI down to Earth. He sent that in a pod down here because he wanted someone to do what Lex Luthor did. He wanted someone to connect his AI into the pipeline so that he could weaken the planet, turn the people against each other, make them question Kal-El, and eventually take the Earth as his own. So that would be Brainiac's big sort of reveal in the third act when his ship and his invading forces arrive to an Earth that now doesn't trust Superman anymore and is busy fighting amongst itself, which gives him the, the 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 opportunity to come and try to take things over. And that sets you up for the big clash between Brainiac and Superman. And of course, Luthor eventually realizes he's made a huge mistake because he's the one who pushed to have this Brainiac stuff put out into the pipeline and to basically take over the internet and poison people's minds. But now he realizes that rather than it, helping the people of Earth and ridding them of the menace of Superman. He just invited something awful into the into the mix. And it'd be interesting to see what impact that has on him. Does he now double down and go full-on villain dictator? Or does is this Lex somehow redeemable? So they, these are elements that I would want to explore. And that element in particular, we'd probably explore over two or three movies. But that right there would be movie number one in my Superman trilogy. So, um, you know, I've always kind of wanted to share that with people. So thank you so much for, for hearing me out for these last uh, 14 and a half minutes while I break down for you what for me would be the ideal Superman story. Um, oh, and also I should mention, you know, in my version, uh, Jonathan Kent wouldn't die. You know, I don't see that as a must. To me, you know, when when the Donner film did it, It felt like, oh, you're kind of borrowing from the Spider-Man mythology. You're kind of making Jonathan Kent into Uncle Ben here. Because remember, Superman's Jonathan doesn't always die. That that became a trope in the last couple of decades. But there are plenty of versions of Superman where Clark goes back to the farm and he speaks to Jonathan and Martha and tries to get advice from them. And they are an active part of his system of who of of how you know how he makes his decisions they're part of they are an ongoing part of clark's morality and i want that i don't want to have deal with the dead parenting he is already going to have to deal with the loss of jor-el and the loss of his mother and the, you know um Kara. no that's his sister i always honestly i always screw up the his mother's name I, you know, maybe that makes me a bad Superman fan, but uh, I'm not gonna bother looking it up now because I don't feel like pausing and keeping going. I'm just gonna keep on plowing through here. But, you know, so he's gonna find out, you know, that he's he's an orphan from Krypton. We don't have to orphan him here on Earth, too, by killing off one or both of his parents. That's just unnecessary. Also, in terms of Lois, how that dynamic unfurls, you know, the way they get to meet is that Lois is given what she thinks is a puff piece that she initially rebels against. She's given a puff piece by Perry about this mysterious guardian angel who's saving lives in middle America. And she's like, oh, I don't want to cover this. What is this? Do these, you know, all right, somebody helped a you know, kitten out of a tree. Somebody helped, you know, a car almost hit a small child and seemingly some, some sort of blur came and stopped the car and dented the front of it and saved the kid. You know, she doesn't buy it. She thinks people are making up, you know, these far-fetched, Fairy tales about something because you know they're you know unemployment is up and everyone's depressed and everyone needs something so somebody is out there making up stories and eventually she starts going around trying to investigate and get quotes about so she can write articles about this guardian angel but the more things happen the more she realizes oh this is real there actually is this mysterious being in the shadows who's helping people. And that would be like a thing that happens during like the early portion of the second act of the film, where she's chasing this mysterious guardian angel, and Clark eventually finds out that she's on it. Yeah, you know, he 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 gets wise that he maybe he sees an article or somewhere or he, or Martha or Jonathan brings it to his attention. You know, there's this Lois Lane girl who is who is investigating, her. and at this point they would both be like college age, early twenties. Um, so eventually he kind of starts having some fun with it and like leaving things behind at the scenes of things that he knows that she's going to be investigating to let her know that like, I know you're following me. And then eventually it becomes almost like a playful flirtatious cat and mouse until she meets the guardian angel one day. And I, I kind of want to just leave it there, but you know, I, I like the idea of that. I like the idea of them having a romance and maybe her being the one who, who connects him to Perry White, kind of like in Man, Man of Steel, she helps him... Get into the Daily Planet, but um, that is how they would initially meet. You know, he would be this sort of, you know, uh, urban uh, urban myth, urban myth, urban legend of this guardian angel helping people, but eventually he becomes very real to her and they eventually meet face to face when he sticks around and perhaps explains to her who he is and why he does what he does. And he hasn't become Superman yet, by the way. This would all precede him becoming Superman, and then it'll be interesting to see how their dynamic evolves once he comes out into the light and she sees, that's Clark, and and, and, and him trusting that she'll keep it a secret. So anyway, okay, I, I think I've given you the nuts and bolts of my Superman story. I'd love to know what you guys think of it. Um... And who knows, maybe one day I'll write it out as like a short story or something, you know, or I'll write a screenplay, and I'll send it to Warner Brothers, where it'll get promptly ignored. But um, that, that is my Superman movie. Um, I'm, I'm very excited, by the way. Changing gears up a little bit. Uh, tonight, I have a date night. It's a Friday night where I'm not working, which rarely, rarely happens. By the way, I wanted to just apologize if you've been hearing crazy sounds throughout this episode, because my upstairs neighbors... They hire uh, like a cleaning crew. How nice, right? They hire a cleaning crew to come up and clean their apartment. So right now they're up there with vacuum cleaners and they're moving furniture around. So if you've been hearing crazy noises, I'm sorry. Remember, I'm not recording in a professional studio with soundproofing and all that sort of stuff. I'm just here in my apartment with the mic and and my iMac on and you know, there's nothing I can really do about that, okay? So I'm sorry. But um, back to tonight. So I'm gonna see A Star is Born. And I know that that's not typically the kind of movie that I discuss here on this show, because it doesn't involve you know any science fiction or comic books or video games or any of the usual geeky stuff. But I want to just talk about it for a second, if I can get you for a moment, on A Star is Born. Because <clears throat> to me it seems like a shining example of something that we don't get to see nearly often enough, which is a film that is just being sold on its performances on its directing, on the chemistry between its leads, where it's not trying to like, you know, it's not trying to do too much. In fact, it's the simplicity of A Star Is Born that people seem to be gravitating towards. The people, you know, promoting this film have brilliantly made structured the trailers where there's like no music in the background. It's all very raw. It's all very personal. It's all very intimate. And basically, the underlying subtext is you should see this because of the magic between Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, and this very sort of simple love story with some tragic undertones and some great, you know, singing performances. Like you know, it's it, it it's very sort of laid bare the story. And for me, as an actor, I mean, I, it's hard for me to call myself that because I don't really pursue it anymore. And and for all intents and purposes, at 35. You know, if I was gonna make it, I would have made it by now. So I kinda of have to look back on my acting exploits in, in, in the rear view mirror. But looking at this, you know, it reminds me of what I love about acting. And that is the work of creating a performance. You know, I've been reading up on A Star Is Born and listening to sort of what Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper did to create these characters, what the screen test was like, what they did And to me, it's all just been like really fascinating stuff. You know, like apparently when when she auditioned for it, they did it at her house and things went so smoothly that they filmed eight pages worth of the script, just the two of them at her house over the course of I think a day or two. And after that they knew, okay, this is is gonna be special, let's do this. And also just fun little things, too, like Bradley Cooper, you know, he wanted to lower his voice an octave. For this character, he wanted him to look and sound differently than Bradley Cooper has ever sounded before. And so he hired a coach, a vocal coach, who stayed with him for a month just to arduously train him to speak lower to know how to lower his register and completely morph and change how he delivers his words and the the, 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 texture of his own voice. I love that sort of stuff. I love to see the payoff of all of that work. Not to mention the singing done in this film is done live. That doesn't happen very often. More often than not, when you see a musical movie, Usually, all of the singing was done in a studio somewhere, on a soundstage, expertly produced and fixed up. And when the actors start singing in the movie, they're just lip-syncing. So in the scene leading up to the song, it's their voices. But once the song starts, it's a pre-recorded track that they're lip-syncing to because, you know, they want to sound as good as they possibly can. For this, since they were going for authenticity and they wanted this to feel really human and really vulnerable and just really textured and authentic, they all do their own singing on the spot in the actual scenes that you're watching. To me, that's fascinating, and to me, it's so vulnerable because what happens, there's so many balls you're juggling there. Right now, as an actor, you're worrying about the acting beats, you're worrying about your lines of dialogue, you're worrying about the lyrics, you're worried about the camera picking up on everything that you're doing. You're worrying about your chemistry with your scene partner. There's all these other things and on top of that, you have to sing. And for Bradley Cooper, by the way, who's not a, you know, he's not a singer. He loves music and he's a he says, you know, one of the personalities in my heart is a musician, but he's never actually done it. It's scary stuff. You are laying your soul bare when you just suddenly start singing in front of a crew of people and it's not done in this carefully controlled environment where you're in a studio with headphones on and candles lit with your eyes closed singing a song. You have to make that reality with your scene partner staring at you, with an audience of people looking right at you. You know how scary that is? That's unbelievable stuff. So for me, as a fan of, of fine acting, of, of, of you know well-tuned performances that take a lot of work to create, you know, A Star Is Born looks like it's gonna be, you know, an all-you-can-eat buffet of awesome for me. Uh, and for my wife, I mean, you know, she's a huge Lady Gaga fan. The, she loves a good love story, you know, it's kinda typical, you know, that's my wife, it, you know. She, she, she gravitates towards like the quote-unquote generic like chick flick type stuff. But um, just overall, you know, we are both very, very excited for this. And she texted me earlier from work. I'm so excited for tonight. And it's just it's great to be looking forward to a movie that's not about aliens and special effects and explosions and stunts yeah to to just want to go see a movie to see two wonderful performers do what they do best i mean it's it's a treat to be able to do and one day I'll talk to you a little bit more about my love of acting and and maybe some of my experience creating characters before I decided that uh. I wasn't going to pursue that stuff because, you know, acting for me is a very, very important part of who I am and how I ended up doing what I'm doing and my love and passion for, for creating a performance is something I could talk about for hours and hours and hours and I I, I rarely do. And one day I, uh, I kind of want to get into some of that with you because, you know, as part of kind of circling back to what I was discussing earlier in this episode, you know, I feel like we don't necessarily look at great actors anymore. We don't put acting up on a pedestal. A lot, of di- a lot of times nowadays, it feels like we talk about the directors and the writers and the franchise potential of these movies or whether or not the sequel lived up to the predecessor. And we talk about all these other things, but it's very rare that you see an article or a column about someone's acting. You know, the last time I feel like it happened was like Heath Ledger, when, when, when he was Joker last year, last decade, ten years ago. You know, there was a lot of talk about his process and how he put together that role. That sort of stuff hardly happens anymore. You know, acting for whatever reason, which is funny because it's such an important part of the filmmaking process and what makes a movie good or bad. But we rarely talk about what goes into creating an unforgettable performance. So I kinda wanna bring some of that to this show since, you know, listen, I'm not, I'm no one, and I didn't do anything. And I'm, I'm a has-been who never was. But I do love this stuff, and I did train to be an actor for 12 years under all kinds of professors, and you know, I have some experiences I'll never forget. And for, if you guys are into the idea of acting, or you wanna understand what it is that makes the magic of a good performance so magical, uh, I'm gonna bring some of that to this show because that's a part of myself that I've never shared with you. Um, but either way, I'm excited for a Star is Born and I, I hope it lives up after all this chatter. I hope I don't go there and I'm like, ooh, ooh what is this? This is nonsense. Um, but anyway, so I'm gonna wrap things up right now with my uh, referral. It's going to be a different type of referral than usual. It's not gonna be a movie. It's usually a movie. Sometimes it's a podcast. But this time... It is a stand-up special because, see, earlier this week, I got, I had the pleasure of sharing with you an article on Revenge of the Fans about the fact that they are developing a George Carlin biopic. Uh, they're gonna, you know, I guess try to tell the story of his life. I don't know what style it's gonna be. I don't know if it's gonna be from, you know, sperm to worm, you know, from baby to death, or if it's just gonna be about a particular part in his life. I have no idea. But all I know is that ever since I, I wrote about that, I've had George on the, on the brain. George is one of my all-time heroes. He's an idol of mine. He's a part of my thought process. I hear George's voice sometimes. He's part of my AI. <laughs> um, and he, he means the world to me. And I've been going back and just kind of listening to some of his old specials. And I mentioned this in the article this one that I'm about to refer to you, but now this is my official referral for this week. And you can find it on Amazon Prime. It is the 1992 special Jammin' in New York. All right, look up George Carlin's Jammin' in New York. For my money, it's one of the best stand-up specials of all time, but not only is it funny, it's insightful, it's timeless, I mean, it's 26 years old and a lot of the stuff he talks about is still relevant today. A lot of the a lot of the stuff he talks about with the state of the world and society and, and everything is still as, as as relevant today as it was then. And in certain cases, he absolutely predicted some of where we're going. And it's it was like it's like eerie. One of the reasons I love Carlin is like not only he was funny, but he was also like a philosopher. You know, he had great, interesting ideas. For how humans should treat one another and for human nature and for what the government is really trying to do. And, you know, he's just, I, I miss him terribly. And I often find myself asking, you know, I wonder what George would have to say about this mess we're in. You know, whenever a new scandal breaks, I'm like, oh, I would kill to hear George sound off on that. Um, hopefully, the movie will do that. Hopefully, they hire some people worthy. to play him to direct the film to do all that sort of stuff because we need George's voice and if this movie is going to help kind of bring him back to the forefront and kind of get maybe some of his thought process back out into the world then it couldn't come a moment too soon. Um... But all right, everyone. So uh, thank you very, very much for listening to episode 75 of The Fanboy. Uh, If you have an opportunity, I'm about to sneeze. If you have an opportunity, please write me a review, share, retweet, comment on the articles. Keep spreading the good word about this show and of revengeofthefans.com because we love what we do and we love it even more when we get to share it with you. And thank you to everyone, really, who has sent me your heartfelt thoughts and reviews and feedback on these shows, because I pour a lot of myself into them, and sometimes I worry that it's TMI or that it's not something that you're interested in, but always when I think that stuff, you guys surprise me by coming and saying, no, that's what we want. That's what we like about your show. I can get my geek news and analysis any number of ways. I like hearing it through your personal filter, and uh, you know that's just, it's uh, it's a beautiful thing. So everyone, thank you for listening. Until next week, life is chaos, be kind. Adios.